Hey, you. Hey, you. How you been? All right. Yeah. Me? Yeah, I'm fine. I'm good. Yeah. Just trying to make sense of the world. Isn't that what we're all trying to do? Trying to make sense of the world? That's all we're trying to do. All right. I went from friendly tone to authoritative tone. Isn't that all we're trying to do? Make sense of the world? Yes, it's exactly all we're trying to do. That's it. You make sense of the world as a kid by asking questions. Why? 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 Any parents out there? Think about your kids when they're toddlers. They start asking why. And we, the parents, become teachers. Why do bees sting? Are dragons real? When you flush a toilet, where does it all go? All these questions that your toddlers are asking. It's up to us to have the answers or say, I don't know. I find myself saying, I don't know, quite a bit. So for toddlers, it's why, why? They go through that why stage of life. How sad that that stage ends. Shouldn't we all just stay in that stage of why, why? In a world that makes very little sense, why do we outgrow that phase of asking why, why, why? I mean, I know we're all Googling shit throughout the day. We're all Googling things throughout the day. But that pure, innocent stage where you see your kids start to ask why, why this and why that? That should never end. I think it ends because some people are worried about being judged. Uh-oh, I should know the answer to this one. Uh-oh. Let me just swallow that curiosity. Let me just stifle that interest I'm having and nod and nod. I'll just, I'll just start nodding when people are talking about things I don't know. I'll just start nodding. Uh-huh. Oh, yes. Oh, of course. Uh-huh. But really, we don't know a bunch of shit. I'm still flummoxed by racism. I am. And I don't even know if I use the word flummoxed correctly, but I felt it was time to bust that one out. I'm flummoxed by racism. If you think about the journey of black people in this country from the origins of the United States of America until today, none of it makes sense. None of it makes sense. I'll ask every historian, explain the origins of racism to me. Plenty of theories out there. Modern racism. Slavery? Explain it to me. Why black people? Why Africans? It's never made sense. A classic answer is, well, as the European powers are becoming industrialized and they're seeking colonies abroad, well, they all need more manpower to extract resources, to turn natural raw materials into business, into companies. And to do that, well, you need manpower. So, Let's find a group of people and turn them into machines. Let's treat them like objects. Okay, so European powers. And I know you could go way back when you talk about the origins of slavery altogether. But let's just talk about the transatlantic slave trade for a moment. Okay, so European powers are trading humans for resources. They need people to farm. They need people to till. They need people to build. Okay, so our country, when we begin our country, I'm going somewhere with this. I'm actually going somewhere with this, so you have to stay with me. There's a point. And if there's not a point, then God, I apologize. So then our country forms, and we have this great idea of democracy and liberty and equality and justice. We have these great ideas, but of course, we don't mean it for everybody. We don't mean it. So to be black in this country today is still going to be a struggle because we didn't start on equal footing, black Americans, as they trace their history in this country, they can clearly see the disadvantage, the injustice, 
the oppression, the segregation. And then they might look around and go, but why? The old toddler question. But why? But why us? Skin color? Is it because indigenous people throughout Africa were viewed as less civilized because they weren't industrialized? And therefore, they had to be told how to live by the European powers? But why? But why? Where does this come from? A disrespect for a group of people. A downright hate to dehumanize a group of people. Where does it come from? You don't have the answer. We don't have the answer. Is it in this ugly wiring of humanity? Is it? I don't know. But before I knew about any of that, before I knew about any of the ugly history of this country, how black people were treated, I think about the role models, the people that impressed me, the people that I admired, the people that I wanted to be like. Think about the earliest public figures and influences in my life. It might have been somewhat misleading. It might have led me, and I could think about this from the time I was six, seven, eight, nine, ten years old. If I'm watching sports, my favorite baseball player was Ricky Henderson. My favorite football player was Jerry Rice. My favorite warrior was Tim Hardaway. And before that, loved Larry Smith. The first Warriors game I ever went to with my dad, I remember it was hard hat night to honor Larry Smith, a power forward who worked hard in the paint. Lunch pail. They called him a lunch pail player. So the giveaway was plastic construction hard hats for everybody in the crowd to honor Larry Smith, who played his ass off every night. Loved Larry Smith. And what was coming out of my TV? The Cosby Show. It's one of the greatest shows of all time. And who was making me laugh? Eddie Murphy was making me laugh. Trading Places. Who was making me laugh? Richard Pryor was making me laugh. When I was a kid, if I could see a Richard Pryor movie, that was funny. And then as I grew up a little bit, The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, of course, that's my favorite show. And then what about the music? Loved Michael Jackson. Loved the Jackson 5. Bill Withers. MC Hammer. Are you kidding me? Think about MC Hammer. The influence he had on my life. Just the way he looked. Sunglasses and doors. Parachute pants. Those dance moves. And then becoming a fan of NWA, Snoop, Tupac, Ice Cube. Long list. All of these men are black. So if this is my glimpse into black America and I am having a suburban white kid existence and I haven't really taken history classes yet, I'm making sense of the world just on my own. I'm just making sense of the world. I figure, I might figure that this is a group of people to glorify, put on a pedestal, right? They're making me laugh. My favorite athletes, my favorite TV stars, my favorite comedians, my favorite musicians, my favorite rappers. And don't get me wrong, of course, I liked a bunch of white celebrities as well. But when I really think about being a kid, you would never, ever understand why this group has been marginalized. It couldn't make sense. It couldn't make sense unless you're taught to. So hate is taught. Obviously, racism is taught. Nobody's born racist. We get that. But what about around me? They also don't teach me that I have white privilege. That's also a concept I couldn't grasp. What's more annoying than white privilege is the people that don't understand that they do have white privilege. I work hard. I work just as hard as anybody. No, 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 no. White privilege is a fact of life. Just certain advantages you're born into without ever needing to recognize or even acknowledge, but they're there. They're just there. White America. Where's the course on that? Where do they teach you about that? So my sample size, it didn't seem small. If I'm a sports fan, a comedy fan, and a hip hop fan, my sample size doesn't seem small. But then you realize black people are certainly a minority. What about 13, 14% of the whole country? 
And then you start to realize, because it's not in a textbook, but you start to realize the endless hurdles that they're dealing with. And if you don't feel compassion after really learning about this history, then that's got to be a brain malfunction or that's got to be the indoctrination of whatever bullshit your parents were feeding you as a kid. But even today, even right now, even today, the why, you know, I still find myself asking why. And I'm the teacher, so I want the students to ask why. But I find myself going, why? I'm asking them. I'm asking teenagers, why? Why do you think this is? Let's study the psychology of such backwards ideologies. Trace it back as far as you want to go. It'll never make sense to me. You can teach me the facts, give me the information of what happened, how it happened, where it happened, but it'll never make sense. It'll always be impossible for me to understand. And so recently I'm watching the Oscars. I watch the Oscars every year. It's a very white event, let's be honest. Not to say there are not black movies or black actors and black directors, but the Oscars, it's a pretty regal white affair. So right as I turn it on, I put it on late this year. They're doing the Humanitarian Award. Now, this sounds like a bit of a Lifetime Achievement Award that they would usually give to somebody like Judy Dench or Anthony Hopkins or Clint Eastwood. You know, here's a time to honor another white person. But this time it was Tyler Perry. And I realized I know that name very well and I know nothing about him. Tyler Perry, you know the name. You know about his Medea movies, Medea which has generated millions upon millions upon millions. And I did read that he's a billionaire. He's not a millionaire. He's a billionaire. He's his own production company because he looks at white Hollywood and says, uh, yeah, no, that's not working for my people. So I'm just going to start my own thing. And it works. And he's likable and he cares and he has a great heart. And I'm learning all of this in a three minute speech. I knew nothing about Tyler Perry. I've never seen a Medea movie, but as he's talking, I'm going to play an excerpt of this speech right now. But as he's talking, I'm thinking to myself, this is the best moment in Oscar history. It was a very forgettable award show this year, but his words touched me. And he's touching on the same subject that I'm ranting about right now is that it seems like it should be a little easier to remove hate and to embrace this idea of equality. It seems like it should be just a little easier. But here's some beautiful words from Tyler Perry that are worth thinking about far beyond this podcast. Even after you listen to this, just let these words marinate a little bit for you. One time I remember I was, maybe it was about 17 years ago, I rented this building and we were using it for production. And I was walking to my car one day and I see this woman coming up out of the corner of my eye and I say, mm, she's homeless, let me give her some money. Judgment, I wish I had time to talk about judgment. Anyway, I reach in my pocket and I'm about to give her the money. She says, excuse me, sir, do you have any shoes? It stopped me cold because I remember being homeless and having one pair of shoes and they were bent over at the heels. So I was like, yeah. So I took her into, into the studio. She was hesitant to go in, but we went in, we go to wardrobe and there are all these boxes and everything around the walls and fabrics and cracks of clothes. So we ended up having to stand in the middle of the floor. So as we're standing there, we, I, wardrobe, we find some shoes, we help her put them on. I stand up, I'm waiting for her to look up. And all this time she's looking down. She finally looks up, she's got tears in her eyes. She said, thank you, Jesus my feet are off the ground. In that moment, I, I just, I, I recall her saying to me, I thought you would hate me for asking. I'm like, how can I hate you when I used to be you? 
How can I hate you when I had a mother who grew up in a Jim Crow South in Louisiana, rural Louisiana, right across the border from Mississippi, who at nine or 10 years old was grieving the death of Emmett Till. As she got a little bit older, she was grieving the death of the civil rights boys and the, the little girls who were in the bombing in Alabama. She grieved all, this, all these years. And I remember being a little boy and coming home and she was at home like, what are you doing at home? You're supposed to be at work. She was in tears that day. She said there was a bomb threat and she couldn't believe that someone wanted to blow up this place where she worked, where she took care of all these toddlers. It was the Jewish Community Center. My mother taught me to refuse hate. She taught me to refuse blanket judgment. And in this time, and with uh, all of the internet and social media and algorithms and everything that wants us to think a certain way, the 24-hour news cycle, it is my hope that all of us would teach our kids, and not only to remember, just refuse hate. Don't hate anybody. I, I refuse to hate someone because they are Mexican or because they are black or white or LBGTQ. I refuse to hate someone because they are a police officer. I refuse to hate someone because they are Asian. I would hope that we would refuse hate. And I want to take this Gene Herschel Humanitarian Award and dedicate it to anyone who wants to stand in the middle, no matter what's around the walls, stand in the middle, because that's where healing happens. That's where conversation happens. That's where change happens. It happens in the middle. So anyone who wants to meet me in the middle to refuse hate, to refuse blanket judgment, and to help lift someone's feet off the ground. This one is for you, too. God bless you, and thank you, Academy. I appreciate it. I was moved, as you can imagine. It was kind of a boring award show, and then Tyler Perry, who's this? I've never seen his movies, and then, oh, okay, yeah. Those are the words I needed to hear. You got to stand up to hate. You got to ask the questions, why does this exist? And when I say stand up to hate, I don't even really know what that means. I do know that a few months ago, I was walking by one of our neighbors and I heard him say, this is like three doors down, just heard him say the most racist thing. He was discussing the George Floyd murder with his old mom. He doesn't even live there. His mom lives there, this elderly mom, and he's just spouting out all this bullshit. And I'm walking on the other side. He's not even trying to soften his voice. He's just blatantly and obnoxiously screaming these ugly racist thoughts about the black community. And in that moment, I just went into fantasy mode. I fantasized going over across the street, just taking him by his collar, slamming him against the fence and raining down upon his face with fist after fist after fist until his face became a bloody, unrecognizable mess. Whoa, that got away from me. And that's all happening in my head. That's how much I hated what he was saying. I hated living so close to somebody like this, but don't we all, you might not know that, but don't we all live two, three doors down from someone like this? I didn't do anything. I mean, I don't even know if that's standing up to hate. If I were to say something, plus you try to keep it copacetic with neighbors, but I came home and just told my wife, I was like, I feel sick. I feel disgusted. It's not all the time that you overhear it in person. I mean, you might see it online all the time, but racism in your neighborhood, you just want to squash it out. I'm hoping people watch the Oscars for moments like that. I'm hoping a lot of white privilege America is able to see a speech like that because it's beautifully delivered and those words are necessary. And who should hate who? Who should really hate who if you study the history of this country? If anybody hated anybody, it would be completely justified to hear that a lot of black people would hate white people, but that's not... What Tyler Perry's talking about, it's not the message at all. Saying hate altogether. How about we uh, eliminate that, huh? I loved it. I do think something good about this young generation is that they're so skeptical. 
And it's almost annoying at times. It's almost annoying at times. This new generation, at least the woke ones that want to be inclusive, they don't just accept news or art or documentaries. They want to know, wait, what's the source? Who said it? I wasn't skeptical when I was a teenager. If a teacher gave me a news story or showed me a clip of a documentary, gave me a primary source document to analyze, you just did it. But I noticed more and more teens are kind of skeptical in a curious way. And I like it. It's good. Not to say you got to just fast forward that into the world of cancel him, cancel her, cancel that. The cancel culture, the culture of canceling. That could be a little impulsive. But I do notice that more and more this generation might be a little more delicate because they're not just thinking of their feelings, but maybe we are witnessing a younger generation that's a little more empathetic, a little more considerate to the point where they will fight for the feelings of minorities that are being mistreated, even right now. Plus, there are so many documentaries now and so many shows coming out. I think it's okay to question, wait, who made this? Who produced this? What's the motive? I feel like when I was a teenager, there was like two documentaries out. I remember the first time I ever saw a documentary. I remember thinking I was such a basketball fan that I have to see Hoop Dreams. And I went to a theater alone. This is like one of the very few times I've ever been to a movie theater alone. And I went to see Hoop Dreams alone. And I wanted hoops. But instead, it tells a story of Arthur Agee and William Gates, two black basketball phenoms on their journey through high school. But also the obstacles and the hurdles they face and family issues and struggles and pressures. And I think I might have been too young for that because I wanted more basketball at the time. If I watch Hoop Dreams now, I get a lot out of it. But I remember seeing Hoop Dreams for the first time, like a documentary that was so raw, bringing you into the inner city. I was like, what is happening? When did they go to the NBA already? Give me the happily ever after. That movie is not happily ever after, though. It's a slice of real life. I think it's important. So when documentaries can actually capture a slice of real life, then they're successful. But now when you just see the Netflix, Hulu, HBO Max just churns them out one after the other, after the other, after the other, they start to lose their luster a little bit. Like I said, there's a recipe to a documentary. They know about the music. They know about the interviews and the angle and the footage and how to attribute a few articles that are going to play into your narrative. I feel like you could whip out a documentary today in two weeks. Like these big production companies, these multi-million dollar production companies can just do it with ease. Yeah, we want people to feel a little differently about the oceans. Let's pump this one out. Yeah, we want people to feel a little differently right now about uh, purified water. Let's churn this one out. I want people thinking about the origins of ice cream. Let's uh, pump this one out. Just one after the other after the other. Causing us to have a discussion for what, five to six minutes, and then we move on to the next, move on to the next. We want people to think about the mistreatment of turtles in Bolivia. There you go. Get people talking. Have you seen turtles on Netflix? Shit, are they mistreated or what? What can we do? And then a student raises their hand and said, Yeah, but the makers of turtles on Netflix doesn't give to charity and doesn't even own a turtle. I go, huh, is that true? And then more hands go up. Yeah, Turtles on Netflix, they claim to be one thing, but really the whole project was funded by Trump's campaign manager. Is that right? Really? You heard that? Make you think differently about something you enjoy? Well, I enjoyed this documentary. And then the skeptical teens, the next generation of curiosity and questioning things go, well, <laughs> you probably shouldn't take it so seriously because I heard those filmmakers have also encouraged a lot of sex trafficking. Really? The filmmakers who did Turtles on Netflix? Yeah, it's what I heard. 
Hmm. Okay. Well, now I don't like that documentary at all. Cancel culture. Get your culture canceled. Ah, shit. Too heavy? Huh? I'm asking. Too heavy today? A little much? Or is it okay? Let me just check in with you all. Yeah, you need a break? Go get some water. Come back. Squeeze a little lemon into that. Spice it up a little, huh? I've watched the nightly news, the local nightly news, twice in the last, I don't know, six months. Both times they had a UFO story. And I realized, I don't care about UFOs. Am I in the minority on this? I don't care. You know, they give you the rundown of stories at the beginning of the newscast. They always give you the rundown of stories. Tonight, a local woman fights off a burglar and lives to talk about it. Plus, later, another UFO sighting has locals concerned. Seriously, they're talking about UFO sightings a little more on the news. These aren't conspiracy theorists. It's just there's more footage. Everyone's got their phones, so everyone's snapping pictures and videos. And if you see anything in the sky that's like a flash of light, you submit that. It's a slow news night at KRON. They're like, another UFO has captured the attention of people in San Rafael. It's got residents concerned. Not me. I don't give a shit. I've never cared about UFOs. Unidentified flying objects? You can't identify them? All right, let's move on. Let's move on. Some people are so into UFOs. I honestly think there's some people that are consumed with UFOs and they're obsessed with UFOs. And they look at the night sky and they go, it's coming. I'm going to see, oh shit, I'm going to see a fucking, I'm going to see a UFO. We're going to talk about it. Fucking UFO. Who gives a shit? You're not going to get any information about that. It's unidentified. You can't identify it. You can only create a discussion with no ending. I'm good. Never cared. Moving on. I'm moving on. I don't even think it's a conversation. I don't even think it's worth bringing up right now. But I realize the more people are talking about it because our government has secret files about it. What do they have? What files are in a locked away cabinet about UFOs? Just a five-year-old's crayon drawings of a spaceship. What are these files that are locked away? Who gives a shit? I don't care. You can't identify it. How are we going to have a conversation about something we can't identify? I don't have the time. I don't have the time for this. Who has the time? Who has the time? Also, who has the time to record themselves? Tell me if you've seen this. Reaction videos on social media. Who has the time to record themselves during an exciting portion of a sporting event? Just to put that video online? This happens. Reaction videos. Your team's about to win the championship. Last minute, film yourself on selfie mode. I run into these reaction videos quite a bit. They are the dumbest things I've ever seen. It's like a Padres pitcher recently. I still have so much Padres content on my social media just because I lived in San Diego for so long, worked in San Diego sports radio. So I still feel like I'm very informed about people's opinions when it comes to the Padres, Chargers, and Aztecs, which is fine. I'm kind of into it still. But I see as Joe Musgrove is throwing the first no-hitter in Padres history, there's people filming themselves reacting, going, yes, yes, yes. Has there ever been anything more unnecessary on social media? And that's saying something, because most of, eh, all of social media is kind of unnecessary. You could draw that conclusion, that if it all just ended today, we would just continue our lives. It's not imperative for us to continue clicking and tapping on the apps. TikToking and Snapchatting and tweet tweeting and Facebooking. It's not imperative. We don't have to do this. We're just delicate. We're delicate. We're programmed now. We're addicted. It happened. There's no turning back. But of all the dumb shit you're going to see reaction videos, I'm reacting right now. 
and pretending that this is completely candid. I'm reacting to Baylor winning the championship. Okay? Baylor is blowing the balls off of Gonzaga. I'm going to start my selfie video and pretend that I'm not recording myself and that I actually watch sports like this. Oh, go, go. Yes! Yes! No one watches sports like that, you fuck. No one watches sports like that. You watch sports, you get into it quietly. It's intense. Maybe you go, yes, or maybe you go, oh, but these reaction videos, enough. You don't watch sports like that. You're acting. All right, I got to get off social media. I think we all just had the realization. I can't keep ranting about how much I dislike it. I just have to get off, choose a new path in life, and I'll be fine. And then everything is fine, right? Isn't that how life works? Eliminate your vice and then everything's fine. No, nope. Then you find a new vice and then you find a new one and then you find a new one and then you find a new one and life is full of vices and we're always sparring with the devil on our shoulder and the angel on our shoulder and the devil on our shoulder and the angel on our shoulder. And I'm on a diet called the primal diet and Jason Pugh emailed me about what to eat and what not to eat. And now I feel the devil on my shoulder say, Hey, take a bite of that. Hey, take a bite of that bagel. And I go, no, 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 no. Hey, take a bite of that sourdough. I go, no, 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 no. Hey, you're at a restaurant. They just served you tortilla chips on the table with salsa. Have a bite. And I go, no, 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 no. They say, you're at a sushi restaurant. Get a roll. And I go, no sashimi. And they go, get a roll. The devil on my shoulder says, get a roll. (laughs) And I go, no, 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 you son of a bitch. It's been about a month and a half. This is true. My first diet ever. And it's a real one. It's a real one. And even though it's called the primal diet, I call it the Jason diet because he sent me one email and he's having a successful life transformation. Not even sure he wants me talking about this, but it's relevant. Does anybody out there have a friend who's lost about 40, 50 pounds? Aren't you curious? Not one of those like, hey, what'd you do in passing conversations? But hey, can you give me a very detailed and structured list of things you did to look that good, to look like that? So I'm following it. And the way I grocery shop now, well, you probably don't care, but let's just say it's a lot of meat and it's a lot of meat. And it's even more meat than you think I should eat. And now I'm Dr. Seussing. I stand on my feet and I eat the meat. He eats the meat? That sounds so sweet. When he stands on his feet? Is he bare feet when he stands on his feet? Or does he wear cleats when he eats his meat? (laughs) When he beats his meat, does he wear cleats when he stands in his fridge and he beats his sweets? Oh, Theodore Geisel, you trained us. By the way, where's a Dr. Seuss documentary? I'm being serious right now. Is there one? I need one. I'd like to learn more about him. Political cartoonist, green eggs and ham, cat in the hat, the Grinch. Come on, Horton, here's a hey. Horton, here's a huh. Horton, here's a who. I want to know more about Theodore. Statue in front of UC San Diego. Who was this man? This brilliant man. I know nothing. That's it. I'm like a toddler now. Why? Who? What happened? Give me a documentary. And then my students will say, did you know Theodore Geisel was a porn addict? And I will say, I don't need to know that. And then my teens will say, yeah, I wouldn't watch the new Dr. Seuss documentary. The filmmakers are smuggling Coke into Malaysia. I'm like, really? You heard the filmmakers are smuggling cocaine? The filmmakers of the Dr. Seuss documentary? I'm just telling you what I heard. They're ready to cancel anybody. You kidding me? This new woke generation who we love so much, they are ready to cancel. You know, Clint Eastwood had guns in the holster. They got canceling in the holster. And I don't know what that means. I don't know. But they're ready. The quick and the dead. Are you into UFOs? (laughs) I just go back to that. Have you ever even thought about why you have kids? If you have kids, have you thought about why you have kids? 
If you think it's because I wanted to have kids, is it that simple? If you have kids right now, let's say you're listening to this podcast and you could answer that question with, yes, yes, I have kids. Then the second question is why? And you're probably going to say, well, because I wanted to be a parent. I wanted to have kids. What if I said, nope, that's not the entire answer. But we actually have a biological mechanism that causes us beyond our own control to desire kids. And now I'm going to play the other side of this debate. But what about the people that don't have kids? Didn't they make the decision on their own? Didn't they consciously make the decision not to have kids? Well, if it's a biological mechanism, how do you explain that? I think you'd have to study the history of money. It's a lot of people. And here's one of the main answers. Feel the financial pressures that come along with kids. And it represents maybe the money they don't have or anticipate will need to have to raise a kid. And they shy away from it. There's more answers than that. But I was just reading an article about this is if it is our biological nature to want to procreate and have offspring and continue the human race, then how do you explain all the people who say no thanks? It's not selfish. It's smart. If you know that you don't have the money or you don't have it in your heart to have them, it's a smart decision. But there used to be less and less people like that. I mean, I realize people are having babies later in life, but there's more people who are just not having babies. You go back 100 years, 200 years, 300 years. That wasn't the case. You were having babies. You were expected to have babies. It wasn't even a conversation. Are you going to be a parent one day? It was just part of the process. So all the people in the history of the world that have had babies, they have continued the human race, continuing life on planet Earth with the evolutionary traits that build upon previous evolutionary traits that build upon previous evolutionary traits. And that only happens with people having babies and babies and babies and babies and babies and babies. But it goes beyond us. If there's this subconscious idea of, well, I have to perpetrate our genetic lineage. I have to continue our family genes. Why does that even matter? Here I am asking why again. Why does it matter? Like if I go for another generation. My wife and I have a couple of daughters and they decide we don't want to be parents. It's done. I'm fine with that. I actually am. I mean, it sounds great to be a grandparent one day, but it's not like I would have a biological response of, oh, I have to be a grandpa. At least I don't think. Plus, I genuinely believe that parents that adopt their kids are experiencing the same level of love. That's my belief. So I think you can poke holes in this idea that it's our biological mechanism. It's actually a debate. I think it's more of a debate. Than just a fact. I've had this debate with friends who believe that it's beyond their control, that it's just their calling in life. It's not their decision. The article from Scientific American that I read says, no, it's not just the fact that we have babies to maintain human life on the planet and meaning. This article says, it is to evolutionary genetic success that we and all life owe our existence and to which the future of all life on earth depends, including creatures that create our own meaning. We perform our solos with passion, but we are playing in nature's grand symphony. That's beautiful. I don't even know if I'm going to break that down. It seems a little much. It's a little much right now. You know, there's still French teachers in French classes throughout the country. They still offer French. How useful is that? Now, my mom was a French teacher. I'm not saying anything too negative. I'm actually just curious. Why is French still a subject? When is French useful? I know there's foreign language requirements, and I think it's cool to learn languages, but learning anything but Spanish right now 
learning anything but Spanish, you'd have to explain to me how it's useful. Maybe you think it's cool. I mean, French is a beautiful language. Are you kidding me? A romantic language. Latin roots. I get it. I kind of wish I spoke it. But isn't that interesting? In 2021 in California, you can still take French. You know who my French teacher is? Wyclef. That's all I need. Is anybody going to let me sing my French song right now? Sure. You got it. Ne me quitte pas. Il faut oublier. Il faut oublier. Tu peux s'oublier. Qui s'enfuit déjà. Oublier le temps. Et malentendu. Okay. Tell me more. César. Qui tu es parfois. Alright, it's French class. Sing along. Little repeat after me. Le Je creuse de la terre. 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 Je Je Oh, here we go. What are you about to do, Wyclef? Mm. Repeat after him. Cesar Milan. What the fuck? Okay, there it is. That's my French class. How'd you do? Did you get an A, B, C? Doesn't matter. You'll never need to use it. But if you do, you'll sound smooth. You'll sound cool. You'll sound like Wyclef Jean. All right, au revoir. That's episode 137. It's in the books. I'll talk to you soon.